This particular text we're going to consider today um, is a very, I, I think, a very fascinating text, <clears throat> um, and also a very, uh, uh, um, one of the most highly debated texts in Scripture, which is Genesis chapter six, specifically the first four verses, um, Genesis six one through four, which deal with this mysterious. Um, union um, uh, between these two groups, the sons of God um, and the daughters of man. Um, we're we're going we're gonna to try to look at the, the various views on that, um, and, and then we're going to consider um, the, the pathos of God. And we're going to ask the question, um, can God change his mind? Can the unchanging God change? There's a tremendous amount of debate around both of these sections. Um, and what I want us to be considering today is this kind of narrative arc of um, corruption, rebellion, judgment, and grace. Uh, and, um, and I want to begin with this kind of supreme question that I think is of utmost importance and one that I wrestled with early on in my Christian faith and came to some pretty strong conclusions based from Scripture. What I saw was that often theologians that I listened to or pastors that I respected um, uh, were so, um, uh, so committed to sort of an unmoving um, systematic theology um, that they're forced to um, force biblical passages uh, into boxes that they don't fit in. And one of those great questions is around the, what's called the, um, the, the divine attribute of impassibility uh, or immutability, that God is a God who does not change. And while I agree with that statement on one level, it is a very important statement to qualify almost immediately. And it's also important for us to understand that all studies around the attributes of God um, are generally philosophical discussions around attempts to understand the God who has revealed himself through scripture. And what we tend to do as um, Western people is to try to go at the biblical text with kind of modern rationalistic attempts um, to discover empirical evidence for something that sits outside of our experience. Uh, I think it's a very dangerous thing to overly speculate on what God is like other than how God has revealed himself to be in scripture and everything God reveals about himself directly corresponds to his relationship with humanity. And so the question of can God change his mind, um, I put up behind me um, a really powerful quote um, by um, an Old Testament scholar, a very respected Old Testament scholar, one of the best, uh, Walter Brueggemann. And he says, God is as fresh and new in relation to creation as he calls us to be with him. He can change his mind so that he can abandon what he has made and he can rescue that which he has condemned. It's a profound statement. One of the things that I like to say about God that I think helps kind of answer this question is that first of all, immutability or impassibility, this idea that God is unchanging, a lot of the views around the attributes of God um, were shaped, um, uh, were informed and shaped by Greek philosophy. And that impassibility piece was directly derived from, uh, from the concept of God as the unmoved mover. That any um, uh, personification of God in Scripture that that humanizes him, anthropomorphizes his behavior is just there for our benefit, but in actuality, that's not how God is. That God is not moved um, by his creation. He is unmoved because of his sovereignty. But 
that is problematic on so many levels and it does not even begin to scratch the surface of well then what the heck do you do with Jesus <laughs> who wept who was angry um, who was moved with compassion for the people were like sheep without a shepherd in other words I say that we must always begin with Jesus and I stand firmly with R.A. Torrance, one of my favorite theologians, who said, there is no God behind the back of Jesus. Whatever we see in the face of Jesus, we are seeing the heart of the Father. And what we find, you don't even have to just look at the life of Jesus, because the Old Testament is filled with what I refer to as the pathos of God. He is a God who feels deeply and when we talk about changing, where I would agree with that concept of immutability is that God is unchanging in these realms, his character and his purposes or plans. Unchanging. He's the same, scripture says, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But God absolutely changes his mind in scripture and that is something that we have to reckon with is that God God is unchanging in his motivations in his plans in his purposes in his character but that doesn't mean that God does not allow his creation to act in such a way that it impacts him it doesn't mean that it overrides his ability to commandeer when he needs to <laughs> but it does mean that God is moved. He is not the unmoved mover. He is the very moved mover. That's what God is. He's an author who cares deeply about the story he's telling, and he cares deeply about you. And God is moved by you as a person. He loves you. As the, un the, the, the God who needs nothing who is complete in himself has sovereignly decreed to not exist without us who were once rebellious and wanted nothing to do with him and often even as Christians continue to act rebellious and often pretend like he's not there because most Christians can go through the day beginning off as a fervent believer by midday you're an agnostic and by the evening you're an atheist I this is the reality of what God is dealing with he is deeply moved by the groaning of creation, which is what we are told in Scripture, that all creation groans awaiting its redemption. And is God moved? Well, we're told, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? God. <laughs> so was Jesus, what, what were you told about Jesus? He was grieved by the, by the unbelief of the people. That, who is Jesus? God. And what do we find in the passage that we're about to read before us is that God is grieved by the wickedness of his creation. And it is a grief that comes to a place that brings forth the most severe kind of judgment, which is an uncreation. But it is also marked by his unwavering commitment to be the God who is merciful to those that do not deserve it. It's a profound reality. The way that I like to define the freedom of God is not um, God's inability to do anything other than what has been determined, because we are not determinists. Um, what I like to define as freedom is that God, God's sovereignty is his freedom, that is, his freedom to love sinners in their sin. And God's holiness means he is not content to leave us there. And God's creativity means that he can create within us that which we did not have the capacity to do before, which is to become conduits of his love and mercy. It's a powerful and profound reality. So I just want to begin here because some of you may be like, I don't know about that. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to encourage you trust the scripture more than you trust the interpreters of scripture. And that means that includes even me. Everything should be tested. This is why a church should never be ran by a person. <laughs> it should be a church that is ran by a community 
of men and women um, and elders who care and protect the doctrine of the church anchored in the, in the orthodoxy of the church that has been bought with blood. That's, that's my firm conviction. So we are told to test the spirits. That includes testing the spirit of what, is being, what you're being told. And I think Christians have become terrible um, at, at A, um, they're, they're better, I think, I think people in the pew are better at, at hearing what is being said than discerning what is not being said that should be. Um, and we need to be much better students. We're so biblically illiterate now. Uh, you know how rarely I even get a question on a sermon I've given? I've had to come back and apologize for s- something I've said that isn't true, uh, you know, a few times. Like, I was like, I was just wrong on this. And thank God I came to that realization because someone called me out and they're like, whoa, dude, that was not a correct, like, I am not Jesus. Although I look like a good white Jesus when I started Door of Hope. And I really long for those days. Um, Paul, Paul Anderson of Skate Church told me that I lost all my glory and power when I cut my long hair off. And so I'm growing it back to see if my strength will return. And Darcy's just worried I'm just going to be a middle-aged man with long, stringy hair. And you know what? So what? I'm going to own that. told her, even if I went bald in the front, I'm just going to wear it long and glorious in the back. Because that's a super sexy look. (laughs) She's like, no, you will not. Maybe with a hat on. All right, let's get into the text. Genesis chapter 6. One through four. The first thing we're going to deal with is what I refer to as the unholy union and the long suffering of God. In Genesis chapter six, verses one through four, we just finished this lineage and we looked at those parallel lines between the line of Cain um, and the line of Seth. Um, how how Cain's line is the beginning of civilization, um, and it is also with civilization comes this underbelly of ultimately violence and that which is opposed to God. But through Seth's line, which is we see that men once again, that is humanity once again, begins to call on the name of God. Um, and we come to that, those parallel names of Enoch and Lamech, which are found both in the line of Cain and in the line of Seth. One line, Enoch, means dedicated to, dedicated to what man can be apart from God Enoch in the godly line, he is dedicated to walking with God, intimacy with God, which is the ultimate picture of what it means to be a Christian. Lamech means to be low, and one sees himself brought low by his own violence. The other one lives low in humility, in trusting in the hope and the promise and the covenantal promise of God. And now we find ourselves in this weird segue um, as we move toward the deluge. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and that they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with um, or it can be remain in man forever for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years years. Um, We're going to talk about this. This isn't the length of how long a person will live, uh, but this uh, most believe that this is the length of time that it will take um, uh, before God brings the flood, um, which is his long suffering. There were giants. This is the translation of a word that we have no actual translation for. Um, The the Hebrew word is Nephilim. um, And there is endless material. Like, do not type in Nephilim on, on the, the... I did it. Uh, and so, strangely, there's so much stuff about aliens and UFOs, and that's where I want to spend the rest of our time today. <laughs> so, um, the Nephilim are these mysterious uh, outcome of whatever this union is, whoever the sons of God are, and the daughters of man or Adam. Um, And it says that there were giants. The reason that it's translated giants is because 
the Nephilim are essentially mentioned in Numbers, and that Numbers passage referred to them as giants, um, which is also fascinating because that is a text after the flood, and doesn't the flood wipe out everyone that's a part of this group of people? So we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. So there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when this, so notice that, and also afterward, that is after the flood, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, that is, they had sexual relationships with the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. By the way, every time you see that word men, that is the actual word Adam. Adam means mankind. Um, those were the mighty men who were of old and men of renown. What does that sound like? Sounds like myth, doesn't it? Um, within every myth, there is truth. Um, probably more truth than we, than we care to admit to. Uh, but myths are those archetypal realities uh, that, um, that try to help us understand our place in the world. Um, and that there's much in the world that is marked by mystery, even supernatural mystery. Um, so what is going on here? I have no idea, so let's just go on to the next section. No. So here's the, here is the general interpretation. I, I want to be very careful. I don't want to spend a lot of time speculating. Um, uh, I, one of the things I learned early on in preaching is that if your sermon is merely interesting, that's just another way of, of someone telling you that they don't know what they're supposed to do with the information that you gave them. So, so when someone's like, I'm like, how, if I, my wife, if I say, how was the sermon today? And she says, it was interesting. That is not good, ever. It means, yeah, that you, you missed the point. I want my heart to be moved. And I hope that we can, we can get to that place that, that moves the heart toward a deeper desire to walk with Jesus. And that's what kind of came to me is this, this text weirdly just produced in me just a hunger to be more vigilant um, in the scriptures, to recognize the mystery and the wonder that there is so much that our rationalistic age cannot explain. There is so much mystery in the world and there are things going on behind the scenes that, um, that have incredible impact on us as God's created beings. So one of the interpretations, and I think this is an attempt by biblical scholars to get rid of what may be viewed as embarrassing or problematic text. And so the way that they try to define this, which is generally not how this text has been historically translated, nor does the scripture really allow us to, to define it this way, is that the sons of God um, are speaking um, specifically of either godly men um, or some kind of royal, royal humanity that's mixing with whatever women they want. Um, so just take the supernatural out of this totally. Um, the problem with that is that phrase, the sons of God, uh, is, is never used in that way. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, which is where that phrase is used, um, again, actually twice, it says, Now the day came when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Humans don't do this, not in the way that we're told, because we're, Job 1 opens up with what is referred to as the heavenly council. And who is with the sons of God? And Satan also arrived among them. So the sons of God, that's one passage, but listen to this. Psalm 82, um, verses 1 and 2. God stands in the congregation of the mighty, or it can be translated holy ones. Um, he judges among the gods. Elohim singular stands in the congregation of the holy ones, which is kind of pointing toward angelic creation. And notice this. He judges among the gods, Elohim. But in that context, it's plural. And what does it say about the gods? 
How long will you just judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. There is a, a, um, uh, there is a book called The Unseen Realm uh, by Michael Heisner, uh, which created a tremendous amount of controversy because um, of his utilization of Elohim to describe, uh, to describe whatever this heavenly council is, that, that it, it sounds dangerously um, uh, uh, polytheistic, that God is a God amongst many gods. Um, but I think it's better for us to, I think for the sake of a um, clarity, and also even though the scripture uses that language, I don't find that very helpful in the modern context and I'm not interested in stirring up controversy. I just would simply say that what Paul says is that um, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the rulers and the principalities of, um, of this age. That he is speaking of some unseen realm of uh, angelic beings angelic beings that have not kept their proper domain. Uh, and so angels, I think that there are clearly, there's, there's cherubim, there's seraphim, there's, there's these, there is a, just as within, uh, within our, in our um, created world, material world, uh, there, are, there are different types of people. There seems to be a host of image-bearing, if you will, um, uh, angelic hosts that are angelic, but also that they're not all the same. And so what they are, the scripture doesn't give us a tremendous amount of detail because the Bible is not primarily about angels. It's primarily about God's relationship with, with, with a humanity that is turned away from him and who he is in the business of saving. So this is where I, I don't want it to just be mere, mere interesting speculation, but what I do want to say is that throughout scripture, there are these continual pointers to these unseen forces that are working against God. And what the church has historically held to throughout its entire history is that these are angelic beings that have fallen, that have and one of the phrases that is used of them, which is why um, many believe that even in the creation account, when he creates the stars um, in the heavens, that the stars are often, were often believed, and especially in the Near Far East cosmologies, um, is that the stars themselves are angelic beings or represent angelic beings. So somewhat like demigods, if you will, pseudo, they seem divine in comparison to what the human experience is is the point but these are created beings so i do not want you to think in terms of a polytheistic worldview that there is a lot of gods and you know one of them rose to the top because he's better no there is yahweh who is the creator of all things and before him was nothing and out of nothing he created everything including that unseen realm so what i believe is happening here is that there are as scripture declares, and I want you to, to know, it's very interesting, Jude chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 3, um, there are multiple passages that point to this reality, that Psalm um, 82, again Psalm 89, um, Job chapter 1, there are a multitude of passages where this unseen realm pops up. In Daniel, uh, when, when the archangel shows up to Daniel, he's like, I was fighting the prince of Persia. Like, what does that mean? Uh, that there seems to be even like demonic authorities, what Paul refers to as principalities, that even seem to have influence over nations. Um, so there is this whole unseen reality that's constantly poking out, like through little pinholes in the biblical text. Um, and it's meant not for us to try to figure out exactly what's going on, but it is meant to remind us that there is more than what we can see happening. Um, and one of the great goals of redemption is what? The merging of heaven and earth. The, there's God space, as Tim Mackey puts it in the Bible Project, and then there's, there's 
human space, the creation, the creation itself. And these worlds overlap, but the ultimate goal, and Jesus' resurrection body gives us a picture of that, is that he's a physical being who can also walk through walls. He can, he can seem to be from one place to another. That, there's a, that he almost becomes, in my mind, a prototype of what, the, um, what our future life in our resurrected bodies will be like is that they will be designed to inhabit both God's space and human space in this in this truly overlapping reality but in scripture that overlap is there but only barely and I believe what is happening here is that this is one of those moments where what God intends to do in his own time in in perfection um, uh, you see his created order actually trying to do it without him. So this is, in my mind, a merging of heaven and earth in a way that is unholy. That's what I believe is happening here. Much, I would say, a modern uh, uh, aspect of this, one of the things that makes me nervous in our popular conversations in modern day, when you read about Silicon Valley and everyone in Silicon Valley is like microdosing on acid and like taking hallucinogens. What's the whole purpose? If you guys have ever read, I, I love Aldous Harding. I mean, Aldous Huxley. I love Aldous Harding too. She's a singer. Um, Aldous Huxley uh, in his Doors of Perception was all about, and this was the whole awakening, the tune in, turn on, drop out of the 60s, Timothy Leary, which, like, which is psychedelics as a means of what? Getting oh, whoa. And lo, the heavens opened. I, was, I just got super excited to try to preach with no microphone for the whole sermon. I'm like, I'm like I can do this. I know I can do this. <laughs> you know, Spurgeon in his lectures to my students said that no man um, has the right to be a preacher who does not have a large chest. Um, because, because how preaching was done was projection of the voice. If you can't throw your voice, you shouldn't be a preacher. Um, so this picture of, of what we have going on here is that I believe that, that even in our modern context is that we constantly see human beings trying to figure out how to get into that God space but in ways other than through Jesus. Um, this is one of my, people ask me like, what do I think about this kind of interest like Michael Pollan's book on, on the use of psychedelics as a, as a, as a way of therapy and, and, and I'm like, you know, I'm not going to give my opinion on, on how therapy works, but I, as a kid who spent a lot of time doing hallucinogens, uh, and not a lot good happened for me. I saw some cool things, and then I saw some really scary things, and then I was scarred for life. Uh, and I believe that I was opening myself up to spiritual realities and experiencing them in ways that God did not intend me to experience them. And I watched my best friend in high school lose his mind and never recover from that same experience. And somehow I got out of that experience. He, he believes he died and went to hell that night. I saw him five years ago. He, he showed up at the church homeless. And he told me as I drove him home that he believed that he still died that night. 30 years earlier um, and that all he's been living in is hell ever since which was the most heartbreaking and sad reality we cannot short circuit God's path for being one with him um, and I think that humanity and it seems like angels as well um, have unfortunately a tragic history of trying to play God apart from being one with God and I think that that's one of the points of this text and so here's the critique of this interpretation that angels are somehow procreating with human beings is because Jesus says when I, I listen uh, John MacArthur would be one that that holds really tenaciously that there's no supernatural thing going on here um, other than wickedness being played out in the human heart because he argues that angels can't procreate the scripture doesn't ever say that what it says is that Jesus says we will be like angels in the heavens and that we will neither be given to marriage. Um, that, that, that's, not, we, that's not how we will live, which I've always kind of struggled with because, and I think I've really struggled with that. I think Darcy's super excited about that. Um, <laughs> eternity, like, I kind of want you to be my person for eternity and Jesus, and she's like, you know, I feel like 
if we make it to 50 years, like that's going to be solid. <laughs> and, but why? It's because Jesus, we're the bride of Christ and there, there's just going to be relationships are going to be different. But it doesn't, but we're speculating or reading between the lines. I can angel, all I know is that something unholy has happened here and something insane has come out of that. Um, and that is these Nephilim or giants or men of old and men of renown. Listen to what it says in Jude chapter 1, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. You know what Jude is quoting there? There is a non-canonical book, which I read this week, called the Book of Enoch. There's three of them. And the Book of Enoch is ancient. It was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's been rejected both by actually Jew uh, uh, Orthodox uh, Judaism because of its consistently pointing toward what seems like a Christian vision of the Messiah, um, but it's been rejected by the church as not canonical, and I have to... I have to um, I understand why, but that doesn't mean that there aren't aspects of it that aren't helpful, that aren't insightful, and our own New Testament quotes from it. And this is one of those passages where the New Testament is quoting from the book of Enoch. And the book of Enoch was well known by the early church fathers and was actually, I mean, many of the early church fathers actually did hold it as canonical. And there's only one, uh, only Ethiopian Coptic um, Christians actually hold to the books of Enoch as they should be a part of Scripture, which is fascinating. So, once again, interesting, not necessarily helpful. Here's the point. I read through it, and what it has is the history of the fall of angels and their reproducing with humanity before the flood and why God brought the flood, which was that whatever the offspring were, they were something other than human, and that they brought nothing but violence and destruction to the world. It even names the different angels. The leader of that group was Azazel. Uh, and so whether it's speculative or not, it seems to be drawn, the books of Enoch seem to be drawn from a tradition that went alongside a belief in Torah, a belief in the authority of Scripture, in the belief of Yahweh. It, it was it was passed on as teachings and sacred teachings that probably have some truth and probably have some fiction. That's all I can say about it. So all I can say is this, in my view, in my estimation, based upon what it says in 1 Peter, listen to this, 318, um, chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, and he might, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Again in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world and on the ungodly. Notice the connection of those angels that did not keep their proper abode is directly corresponded um, to the pre-flood. So, I think that Scripture is clear that this is something that is not natural. It's <laughs> my point. And if you want to hold to the idea that the sons of God are just people, that's fine. That still sits under the umbrella of orthodoxy, and that's your problem. And I said, test the spirits. You can do your own investigation into it. I personally believe that these are are angelic creatures who did not keep their proper domain um, and what we have is the Lord in the middle of it this unholy union of heaven and earth the attempts to merge those realities apart from the creator um, leads to the Lord saying I am not going to and I think this is so interesting my spirit shall not strive with or remain in man forever. 
The language that's used there is the, is the Hebrew word that would be translated um, as abide. Um, but it also can mean to strive with. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight with man or another way of translating it is I'm not going to continue to provide protection for, um, for something that has become literally a perversion of what I intended. And what do we see again and again is that creation is consistently moving toward, um, toward a complete perversion of what God as creator intended. And this isn't just happen. This is why after the flood, he says, I will never flood the earth again. The reason he says that isn't because the earth doesn't deserve that is because he recognizes that humanity will continue to return um, and that, that this unseen battle that rages um, against God that is playing out even amongst us um, is going to continue to repeat those same processes. And this is what human history tells us is, is uh, reality, which is why ultimately we have to say at the end of the day, Jesus is the only respite for us um, is that God, instead of destroying the earth, enters into its brokenness, even into its abominations, um, and takes it into himself because he is a God who, even though we're about to read of, a, of a, what I would call it a decreation, um, it is still marked by long suffering and by heartbreak and by a God who is vulnerable. Um, for us to see that he is a God who feels deeply and cares deeply. Even, in, even Ezekiel says God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. This is one of the reasons why I get so disturbed by some, some threads under the, under the umbrella of orthodoxy, some theological streams where I've met Christians that seem to be stoked on the wrath of God and the idea that people are going to hell. It's like, really? I'm, I feel like you're kind of fighting against the very nature and character of God. And I think that that's almost anti-God. This is, I would say with Wesley, your God might be my devil. Because what we see is a God who is heartbroken at this rebellion. Look at this. So what does it say in 5 through 7? So that's all I'm going to say about that. I don't know what's going on, but they're crazy. There's some kind of union that should not be happening and out of that comes an even an amplified violence and immorality in the world. And it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that word, regretted. Uh, and and uh, by the way, that can be translated as um, the heart is grieved regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart it's kind of the same language being played out there so the lord said i will blot out man whom i have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and the birds of of the heavens for i am sorry that i have made them when we ask that question of can god change this is that passage that kind of throws a wrench in those that want to create a sort of static vision of God's nature, character, and even his emotions. Um, but God is a God of great pathos and great feeling. And I love actually what Brueggemann says in this regard. Let's listen to this statement from him. It's so powerful. He says, God's creative power, as we saw in the creation account, is not coercive or authoritarian. What does he do? He speaks things into existence and then he blesses them. He gives them freedom. Go, be, be fruitful, multiply. He puts into motion creation and then gives that creation a certain level of freedom. Not in the, not in that, um, the old school kind of uh, view of deism, which was that God is a detached creator who like put the, the universe into existence and then just removed himself from the story and doesn't care. No, he is a God who has created the rules by which creation exists. Um, and he creates a certain, it is freedom within parameters, even among the created order, the fish, the bird, they're, they're given 
they're given their proper domains. Isn't that what we're talking about is not keeping to that proper domain? Um, is that the fish belong in the water, the birds belong in the air. The, the, they're to be fruitful, to be multiple. The creative reality of God um, is not coercive and authoritarian. Rather, it's invitational and, and permission granting. While, while God's wills creation to be turned toward Him, He does not force it to do so. I like that, how Brueggemann puts, puts that. He wills that creation be turned toward him, but he does not force it to do so. By the way, this Brueggemann is a deeply reformed theologian, so I find this extremely refreshing. I mean, we're all reformed in the sense that we owe our existence to the Reformation, but we mean something generally different by that in America today, um, which tends to create um, uh, more of what I would refer to as a meticulous kind of providence view of God, which is everything is determined by God. Um, and Brueggemann, as a deeply reformed man, completely disagrees with that. And I think, you, I think what he's saying is that Scripture does not support that. Notice what he goes on to say. God wills creation to be turned toward him. He does not force it to do so, bringing the world to trust and obedience is not done by divine fiat. It's not something that he just decrees. We're not robots. It is done by the anguish and grief of God who enters into the pain and fracture of the world. The world is brought to the rule of God, but only by the pathos and vulnerability of the Creator. The story, this is so profound, the story is not about a world assaulted and a God who stands remote. It is about what the hurt God endures because of and for the sake of his wayward creation. That is a profound statement about the nature of God. It totally brings me back to a quote that I've been quoting since I started Door of Hope and put in my book because it's always moved me, which is, why do we suffer? Why do we suffer? Why is creation so hell-bent on its own destruction? Why are we often so hell-bent on our own destruction? What is it about us? And if it were not for God's compassion, His willingness to move into our brokenness, into our rebellion, would we not all be lost? We focus in on the destruction of the world, but the story is not primarily about that. It's actually more about the heartbreak of the Creator. This isn't what He willed. And He allows Himself to endure the rebellion of His creation. And yet, He doesn't ever lose His grip because the story does not end with the destruction. It actually ends with grace. And I think that this is something that's important for us. It is foolish for us to try to explain why we suffer as human beings. Why there is pain and anguish in the world. The, of course, the big theological answer is sin. Yes, sin is rebellion against God's rule. It's a rejection of His grace. It is humanity being God apart from God. It is our attempts to make names for ourselves as we considered in the line of Cain. Every city is an emblem of Babylon. This is a place where we make a name for ourselves apart from God. This is where we show the world what we are capable of doing apart from God. But all of that has brought nothing but heartbreak and violence throughout human history. Have you guys gone and seen the movie Oppenheimer or you see Napoleon? Human history is marked by the genius of humanity and it's a genius that constantly is our undoing. That's reality apart from God. And what it creates is suffering. And all of us will suffer in life. All of us. We will lose people we love. We will go through heartbreak after heartbreak. And somehow, we still innately think that God is good. Most of us think that anyway. There's this deep refusal to let go of that. Why? It's because of Jesus. It's even what we see in this story. Yes, God regrets what he has made. He's heartbroken by the rebellion. He's heartbroken by the absolute perversion um, of this unholy merger between an angelic host that knows God face to face that chooses to rebel against him. That's why there is no possibility of salvation. Um, and, and to actually 
infuse creation with basically a disease that the only way that God can be merciful is to basically say, I've got to start over. <laughs> it's like, it's almost it's what people ask me about, about hell itself. Hell is also a vision of God's mercy because it is a place where God says, sin shall go no further. It's not a place where he torments people for all of eternity. It's a place where people are tormented by their own rebellion and rejection. And God, as the good physician, like a, one running a mental institution, says, it's not getting out of this box. <laughs> it shall go no farther. It will not reign any longer. The second death is what it's called. And here we see God in His heartbreak. It is His love of His creation. His love of humanity, which is why He is so heartbroken. And His wrath, you guys, is not His hatred of people. His wrath is His hatred of sin because it is the disease. It's like the way that if you've lost a family member to cancer, you hate cancer. It's ugly, terrible disease and it is a horrible thing to watch someone perish under its weight and you hate it you hate it because it takes from you the thing you love which is the person god hates sin because it robs him of what he loves which is you and i think when we understand that we can begin to get our heads into the reality that what we have here is the evil heart of humanity and the way that sin produces sin sin begets sin and sin becomes exceedingly sinful as we surrender to it, and that there is a spiritual reality behind what we do in the created order. We are responsible for our decisions, but don't think for a second that we aren't also the pawns um, at the influence of things unseen. And that is a spiritual reality that I think is important to draw from this text that the New Testament writers understood well. And in our secular materialistic age, we have stopped believing in the devil and we have become his tools. And that's a problem. We have people all around us demonized. <laughs> and I'm not talking about demons under every rocks. I'm not talking about some kind of speculative, you know, red, red horned, red creature with a long tail. I am talking about pure evil that has no good, no actual reality or being in the being of God. It is an active nothingness, a personal reality. Satan is essentially nothing, but he's not a nothing that can't do anything. He's very real. And, I don't, and I'm not saying that the idea of the kingdom of darkness, which is the outcome of human sin, is real. I'm saying that there is a spiritual domain where there are beings that have so rejected God and His creation and they know they have lost and their only goal is to bring down as many with them as possible. It is the ultimate suicide mission. <laughs> And it is effective. And Satan's greatest work is not out there amongst those pagan people. His greatest work is always in the church. It's always in the church. You're like, if I have the Holy Spirit in me, I cannot be, I can't experience. Scripture never says that. I think the word possession is, an, is a hot topic word and overloaded anyway. I like, the, I like the language that Gary gave me years ago, demonized. We become, when we let the sun go down on our anger, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give a foothold to what? The devil. This reality of spiritual things at play is also the thing that influences us toward an exceedingly rebellious spirit, which is sin, which is what we see here, and it grieves God. That's the point of this text. And we end with this. The one for the many and the mercy of God. In Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Remember what it said in 529? And he called his name Noah saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. You want to see the logic of election in Scripture? It's not God chose you and he rejected her and he chose him and he rejected that guy. That's not election. God's not fickle and he doesn't function that way. Election and its logic is Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I chose you, that is, you 12, for a particular mission. That is to bring my gospel to all. 
In Noah, it's the principle that is found from the beginning of Scripture to the end, and we'll close with this idea because it ends us with Jesus, is the one for the many and the many and the one. Is that it seems like God has lost. That the creation was a, was a, was, um, uh, was a pipe dream. That God had the idea of utopia and you know, he was too idealistic. He lost out. But God knows the beginning from the end. And Jesus was always a plan. And he took the risk. It was worth the risk to him. The liability of this experiment called humanity. Uh, and that risk was worth it because ultimately redemption would be worked out through Jesus, who is the only innocent scapegoat in human history, who becomes the ultimate second Adam. If sin entered the world through the first Adam, then salvation has entered the world through the second Adam. And this is what we are told here. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. For this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. All of these things are pointing toward the ultimate one for the many, which is Christ. And as Dorothy Sayers said, whatever game God is playing with human beings and our suffering, he has played fair and taken his own medicine. The spiritual battle is real, friends. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. There is a war that is going on and rebellion of humanity. Listen, we're just as rebellious today and there's just as much unholy union today as there was then in my, from my vantage point. And all I would say is that because of the cross, God has already played His final card and won. And the reason that the story isn't over yet is because He's not done saving that which seems to be against Him, which is us. <laughs> because He's that good. He is the one for the many, and He is the God who is merciful. And if His grace means anything, it means that He loves you without contingency. And Satan can do nothing with that other than get you to believe that it's not true. But he can't change it. You may not believe that you are loved on your worst day, but I'm telling you right now, it is possible to die unsaved, but it is not possible to die unloved. You are loved. And the question is, is will we surrender to that love? Because God did not destroy creation. He recreated. And He did not lose His grip. On the, and He stayed true to His promise that through the seed of the woman would come the redemption of the world. We worship and serve that redemption. And that redemption is not something, it's someone, it's Jesus. And this is why the goal of the Christian life is not arriving. It's knowing Him. And so I simply ask you, do you know the God who grieves at our brokenness, who weeps with us, who feels our pain deeply and allows himself to be subjected to our rebellion and still yet refuses to let go? That's the God of the scriptures. And I pray that that is a God that you, that's the kind of God I can worship. I can't worship a God that doesn't understand my pain. I need a God who's entered into it and knows the brokenness that I am and this is why I am so willing to cast myself in total dependence upon him. Amen? Let's pray.